You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Our topic for today sounds beguilingly simple, getting the right people into the critical roles that drive value for your company. In other words, matching talent to value. The snag is, many companies don't have a really crisp perspective on how value is going to be created, let alone the roles that will be critical to making it happen. Even if they know the roles, they may not have taken a really dispassionate look at whether the people in the roles today have got the skills and support they need to get the job done. To discuss the discipline of talent to value, I caught up with McKinsey partners Carla Arellano and Mike Barrier. Prior to joining McKinsey, Mike was Chief Talent Officer at Walmart, and before that, Head of HR at Alcoa. Carla and Mike, thanks so much for doing this, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Simon. Really excited to be here. Yeah, great to be talking to you today, Simon. Thanks. What about this issue of, of mapping talent to value? Like When we talk about that, what... What does it mean in practice? Talent to value flips many of the usual approaches to talent decisions on their head. And when I say usual approaches, uh, I say most uh, decisions and energy around talent are hierarchically driven. They tend to be driven sort of by gut instinct and judgment, you know, by the sense that somebody's been at the organization for a while and has achieved X, Y, or Z level. And talent to value sort of flips all of that around and says, let's actually start with how you're going to create value in the organization. Then let's figure out what's the work that needs to happen to get there. Then let's figure out who needs to deliver that work. Um, And finally goes into, well, who are the people that we would put in those roles to deliver that work? Yeah, Carl, I love those points. And it's almost as if current state or where HR is coming from, it's, it's it's kind of like fuzzy logic. You know, it's a bit fuzzy about the roles and what's required. It's a bit fuzzy about the talent, you know, it's, you know, who are the usual suspects, who's, who are the favorites, you know, because a lot of that's being identified in what, with most subjective processes. So while the goal, I don't think is that different, you know, get the best talent in the most critical roles, it's how we do it that's fundamentally different, and it has to be. So how do you actually determine which roles are most critical? And is there some science you can apply, like when you think about value drivers and modeling out like where do those drivers show up and therefore if you think about the roles that are going to contribute on the front end of this you have more of a fact base in terms of why certain roles are critical more critical than others and it's because they have a disproportionate contribute um, contribution on the value you're trying to create on the other side of it if you're not clear about what is success in the role and do we really know our talent to really put the best fit talent in the role you're also not clear. So, so you're, you're making decisions without really knowing which roles are critical and which talent is really the best fit. But what we're saying is that you're putting the company, the future value in jeopardy by not doing this. And it all starts with the value agenda. So like, how are we actually going to make money? How are we going to create value over the next X years? And then, you know, what are the critical roles to delivering? And by the way, those critical roles may not be the most senior roles in the org. Yeah. Yeah. And the talent that's best fit for them may not be currently on your radar. You know, you got to find them. 
And when we do this analysis with companies and we help them really map the critical roles to deliver value, how many roles, you know, percentage-wise do we typically find we're talking about here? We've recently run some neat research across the, I don't know, 50, 60 plus efforts that we've, uh, th that we've uh, achieved recently. And we're finding some very, you know, very strong similarities across these. Usually there's somewhere between, you know, uh, 30 and 50 roles that make up somewhere between 70 and 80% of the value agenda. And, you know, that tends to be regardless of company size in terms of market cap and employee number. And then more interestingly, we've also found that frequently it's usually about 15 roles that are delivering somewhere between 40 and 50% of the value. So there tends to be quite a bit of concentration in value. Now, some of that we find happens because of what Mike described, where roles have actually been built around sort of superhumans or super roles. So those roles are picking up a lot of value, potentially disproportionately from where you'd like them to be. But if you think about the implication for a CEO or, their, or, or a leadership team, you don't necessarily need to spread all your efforts and keep track of several hundred people. Yeah, Carla, I'm amazed at how many times have we gone through this. And the beauty when you take a value driver, you know the value, you know a function's contribution. So assigning value to roles is really important in this work. So you could actually stack rank, right? Mm -hmm. And then you start to go down the list. And by the time you get to like 50 roles, you've captured more than 80% of the value. And again, I cringe a little bit. What, what's the percentage? You know, is it 2% or 5 or 1%? Or it's, it's more about what could a CEO in particular, but we like to think of the G3 as the, the body in the organization that does this work, the CEO, CFO, and CHRO. But this becomes an active list that you manage. And I find that it's hard to manage more than a line of sight to 50 roles deep in the organization. So that, you know, and, and by the way, if those 50 roles are capturing 80% of the value, it's important to prioritize and, and actively manage them. But the other part of this and, and kind of the work that we've been getting into lately is there's no reason why you can't take this down into levels in the organization. So the fact that there's a G3 at the top, I like to describe that, that that's the enterprise view and that's where you look at 50 roles. Let's say you're a function or a business unit leader. You might have five of those 50 in your area, but you, could, you might also have another 10 that you really care about. So you kind of start to cascade the method down. So you want every business leader to be thinking this way and thinking about, you know, what is the value we're creating the function. But we start at the top in terms of getting alignment, particularly between the CEO, CFO, and CHRO, to take the hard look and where do those 50 show up. Can I just push a bit on this notion of uh, assigning value to roles, particularly, you know, roles that are not in the commercial front line? If I think about, you know, big functional roles, I don't know, something like cybersecurity, absolutely critical. If good people aren't in those roles, you know, the enterprise at some level could just grind to a halt. But yet, you know, how do you assign value to roles like that? A core part of this starts by getting underneath what work needs to happen and what needs to be done to create that value. Then we go into, well, then who needs to contribute to that value, right? So who needs to do that work to get there? We have a series of heuristics across what we've called value creators. So to your example, right, commercial leaders tend to be the most straightforward or P&L owners, value enablers. So think of this as your enabling functions, HR, IT, et cetera. And then what we call value protectors. This is where your cybersecurity, you know, legal, et cetera, would come in. And as we go through each value pool, we're trying to get underneath 
what's the work, who's doing it, and how are they driving it? We're really testing for where is the sort of actual, you know, hardcore work and sort of strategic decision making and leadership happening. In the cybersecurity example, um, one of the things that we look for frequently and have discussions around is how much value is at risk? and how much do we want to assign in terms of like a protecting risk? So that's where cybersecurity roles come in rather frequently. Yeah, and, and, and Carl, one thing I would, I would emphasize is the front end of this. So when you think of value drivers, and let's say you think of some that might be around organic growth, let's say revenue growth as an example, right? You start to look across the organization. So let's say you wanna grow a billion dollars on the top line. You look at your commercial group, sales and marketing. You look at product or operations, depending on your business. And then you look at those enabling functions. I mean, you could literally take a billion dollars of top-line revenue growth and say, okay, well, 30% of that has to come from sales and marketing. They have to go out and create the demand. But obviously, that's not all of it, right? We have to deliver the product. Maybe there's an R&D contribution, or maybe there's a real operations component. So these are kind of the creator roles because they're so important to generate the demand for in this case, the top line revenue growth, as well as the delivery, right? Then, so maybe 30% is in sales and marketing, another 30% in operations. Now you still have 40% of that value, which could come from these enabling functions like technology or HR to provide the talent to the sales teams or the operations teams. So you start to build this mapping, and, and we have a, a great way to model this, of the value driver, what functions you know, are contributing, what percentage of that value. And then within those, that's where you get into the valuation on the role. So, so let's say you take 30% of a billion into sales and marketing, there's a value there and you say, okay, well, there's seven roles in marketing that are absolutely essential to grow top line revenue. You know, they're those key account managers that we've been using as an example. You then distribute that value across those roles. So there are some heuristics that we work with some percentages, whether you're a creator or enable a type of role. But the beauty of putting this into a model is that you can do sensitivity analysis. So maybe it's 60% on the front end and you know, only 20% on the product side or vice versa. And, and you could quickly see the impact on, on the kind of roles that pop up. So we've, we've had a robust conversation as a management team about what our value agenda is. We've hammered out some, some areas of ambiguity. We've done the hard work of then identifying the, the roles um, that are really going to matter over the next few years. What happens next? Uh, the fun stuff. First is, okay, if these are the roles, what does success look like? And I come from HR, so I could pick on myself. Usually HR doesn't really have up-to-date, and I would call almost nimble and dynamic role descriptions that can really capture what a role needs to do today. And this is part of the issue, Simon, where a lot of our HR processes are, are very dated and not really designed for this kind of period of exponential change and disruption. So the first thing when you, when you say, okay, this is a critical role, we all agree, it's one of the top 50, is to define, and Carla mentioned it, a, a role card. And a role card consists of the mission for the job, and then in language of jobs to be done, what are the five to seven things that are most important that this role has to accomplish to be successful? And by the way, you also know the value that, that the role you know, should capture, and written in a language that's very clear, concise, and tied to those value drivers that we talked about. So some roles might hit you know, two or three or even four value drivers, and you really wanna be clear, like this is exactly what needs to be done in the role to capture that. That's half the role card. The other half is how are you gonna assess somebody against those requirements? Role descriptions were designed to stand the test of time, right? A lot of them are old, static, they've been around, you know, 
Comp uses them to you know, price jobs relative to market. Search firms use them. We're talking about something different, and we need a much more nimble, concise way to think about jobs and design jobs so you don't get this phenomenon of double, triple hatting somebody or having them do you know, 60% non-value-add work. So we want to be really crisp, and that's why we even changed the language to, to roll card, not a job description, because you want to be really clear about this is what this role needs to do over like a three-year time horizon, and this is the value that you can measure success in the role against. It's somewhere almost like between a hybrid, between a role description and like, a, you know, your, your annual objectives. It's sort of somewhere in the middle there. It's a different critter. Yeah. Yep, yep, very much. So, and I think of it, um, you know, when we've developed these sort of baseball cards or roll cards for leaders, you know, one of the first things that happens is sort of the reaction that, oh, we have the person in this role doing like 50 other things that are yeah. not on that list. Exactly. <laughs> um, usually followed by how would we, you know, how would we expect them to actually deliver this when we have them doing all these other things and are they actually the best placed for everything else? And that tends to be one very much. The other thing uh, where, where Mike was going with this notion of the knowledge, skills, attributes, and experiences is that most organizations have, you know, moved people into roles based on, you know, they were successful in this other role or, you know, they, you know, somebody likes them and knows them and has worked, they've worked well together for a very long time, et cetera. But, you know, really, really specifically, do we want somebody who can actually build a team of very diverse profiles to go do something different or hard? Or do we want somebody who can be a very, very strategic negotiator with customers? Th those are very different sort of requirements for a role. And getting really specific on those and how you might measure it can be hard, but the rewards, I think, are very high. Now we're going into the third step, which is the matching, right? So we define the value agenda, the drivers. We know where the critical roles are in the organization. We write the role cards. And now it's time to actually assess and match talent. And a lot of times you'll find that you, A, you don't have your best talent in a good percentage of critical roles, and B, your best talent is somewhere else and they're not even on the radar you know, for these kind of roles. So that's why the matching is really important. What's the, uh, this, this may be hard to answer, but like, what's the percentage of mismatch very often when you do this for the first time? Do we find that organizations are like 70% mismatched or are most organizations actually, you know, it's like only 10% of the roles where there is some serious head scratching and conversations once these cards are laid out. So what comes to mind is just a recent experience where we found 45% of the roles were a great match. I call it green. You know, the, the, the incumbent was the best fit when, when you compare. So 45, 50%. 20 to 30% typically have gaps, but they're addressable. So they do have some gaps, but you know, they are the best talent you have. And, and if you have clarity about how do we help them address their gaps, which we can get to in a minute, you know, the techniques for that. So typically, you know, it could be in the ballpark of 20 to 30% that are mismatched. It doesn't mean you fire them, right? It means that, you know, there's probably a better role for them or you've got to look either internal or maybe go external. These are not the roles you want to give somebody a stretch assignment for. You know, these are your critical roles that are going to deliver value. So you really want to do, you really want to put your best players today in these roles. I think the other thing alongside that, Simon, that I've seen frequently is um, looking at sort of the team around a role 
or looking at sort of the team of roles because you might find that um, there's a you know there's a gap of an incumbent to a role. You might also find that across a team there's sort of a core missing experience or capability set that you need to complement in some way. So I have a, a client, uh, an organization that's been going through a restructuring for quite a while, and uh, none of the sort of individuals in critical roles had actual, you know, restructuring experience, which was a little bit of a flag, right? It wasn't that every single one of those roles needed to have it, but it was important that at least one or two of them did to get there. So there's the, that individual view, and then there's a little bit of a team view as well. Yeah, and this goes back to my slight skepticism about how easy it is to assign uh, value to to roles, because I think we're acknowledging there that so much of what goes on in an organization is a matter of team production. You know, there are teams delivering value, not individuals. So, you know, if you say you need to reinforce a, a role by bringing in somebody else who's the kind of wingman, that's a, a gendered phrase, but, you know, a, a wingman effectively who can, you know, compensate for one element – aren't you immediately beginning to sort of undermine this idea that it's that role and that role alone that's delivering the value? No. I, so I, I have a very strong view on that. A critical role leader needs to absolutely leverage the team and think about, you know, and it might not even be their own team. Like there could be a, an important collaboration between, you know, across function or function to BU or across BU. So now we're getting into like, how do you optimize value capture for that critical role leader? They're on the hook. You need somebody responsible. If you just try to tackle it from the team dynamic, you're going to miss something. So we'd like to think that there's a critical role leader that's on the hook, but part of their success is going to be driven by how well they build the team around them and how well they can build you know, cross-functional or collaborate you know, horizontally in the organization. So it's not, it doesn't like put teams aside and say, no, it's only the role important. To be successful in the role, team, the team, you know, team comp is absolutely essential. So it's ultimately... Somebody has to be on the hook, though. I think that's the message. Somebody has to own the delivery exactly. value. Exactly. Because that happens a lot where you, 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 you kind of take a team approach or you do something like broad strokes without really having that person that's, that you, you look at and say, that's their role. They, you know, the value is tied to them in that role. But the way they succeed in that you know, involves not only the team, it involves the workforce. And does the workforce have the capabilities, the culture, you know, how they run the place, and do they take out org bureaucracy so they can move with speed and agility. So a, a lot of the organizational things light up here, but this is the front end to prioritize the role and then how do you make a leader successful in that role vis-a-vis -vis the, the top team and the organization and the capabilities and the culture to, to run the place. Do you, get, uh, do you get pushback from organizations at that cultural level? Doing this in this way just feels kind of countercultural. Definitely. I, I mean, I think maybe more than pushback, I think there's a tends to be a very sort of deep seated, you know, philosophical question for organizations. One around, you know, what's the difference between critical and important and how do we make sure that we're not sort of creating a stratification of our workforce and making some people feel more important than others. A lot of organizations complete sort of um, so it's going to sound a little bit uh, harsh, but sort of confuse fairness with everybody has to get everything the same no matter what. And so th they end up, you know, struggling to, to sort of, one, feel comfortable doing the approach, and then two, really um, figuring out what they would do differently for sort of that group of critical roles than they might do for other roles in the organization. 
And then I think there's also this sense uh, around, you know, what's the urgency and where Mike was going, I think, around the culture and the sort of agility that you create in an organization to make sure that those critical roles are able to be successful and deliver on the value, right? Um, that, you know, likely will require a shift from the way things are normally done to actually drive forward potentially a different sense of urgency than you might have had in terms of certain things. Yeah, I have two principles related to this, Carla. It's the development matters for everybody. Every employee in an organization should have the opportunity to reach his or her full potential. And you want to provide that in a platform and to grow, especially as leaders. But while that's important, it's also important to think about the future of the company. And therefore, who are those talents that you absolutely want to get into the most critical roles? You need to do both, but in many times we only do the, the broader set because what you're saying, Simon, because there's a culture, you know, we don't want people, it's, it, we win because it's one team rather than there's certain people. And that's why we really put the emphasis on the roles that matter. And then not only looking for like the 50 people, but what, what's the sex succession pipeline behind them? You know, there could be a couple of hundred people that you're also developing to be, be ready to take those roles in the future. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it, it's true. Every organization, you know, treats people differently. It's just we're used to doing it based on hierarchy. And the difference here is we're going value first and role first. And that's, you know, it can feel a little unusual, but actually it's not like everybody in an organization gets the same treatment today anyway. And hierarchy takes care of that. Yeah. And, yeah. and Simon, I, I'd add it's, it is hierarchy, but it's also the definition of top talent or literally when you use a nine box, you're trying to find out, well, who are our highest potentials? So companies segment already, but they segment the talent, not the roles. Um, and then you don't really even know if you need more of a fact base, you know, who actually has the potential and its potential for what. And we're saying it's potential for to be successful in the critical role. So to leverage on the fact that most companies are already segmenting talent, we're saying, well, segment the roles first and then match the talent and get that right and then broaden it, broaden development and leadership and opportunity and, and tackle that that way. And if you think about like what does a CHRO need uh, and also what does a really good human resource function need at a company that's going to do all of this well, like what are the, what are the gaps that we often see? I'd see the, the first part is almost guts, right? The, the CHRO has to kind of have the moxie to push up against the CEO and the CFO, the exec team, and call out if, if the value agenda is not really clear. Like, you know, if, if it's a little bit, ambiguous or fluffy or ownership is, is not quite there, this is the moment that a CHRO can really say, hey, if we want to leverage our human assets, um, we, we need much more clarity about drivers and where in the organization is it most critical because we want to deploy our talent just like you would think about deploying the financial capital. So that's the role of the CHRO, particularly with the G3, is to increase the awareness and, and to lead with, you know, we, we need our value agenda, value drivers, and to take that in the organization. From there, the CHRO really does need a good sense of the business and the industry and what's, what are the trends, right? And to Carla's point, the CHROs, you're an officer first, and you happen to have an HR talent toolkit, but really understanding the business, the business dynamics, the ways that the company, you know, can achieve value in the future. You know, Mike, as I'm listening to you, there, one of the things that you said really jumps out at me. I think 
you know, CHROs are probably most comfortable, but I think as you get into some of their teams, there tends to be less comfort. And it's sort of this concept of really knowing the business and the industry and how it makes money. And what I tend to find is it might be that uh, an HR leader sort of understands it, but might feel uncomfortable actually engaging a business leader on where value is going to come from and really why they think they're going to achieve a certain margin or what is the plan to sort of capture that digital growth. So I think there's something around what you said earlier on sort of, you know, having the moxie, but also enabling that in your team and giving them the comfort level that they have just as much, you know, right and as well as sort of the demand on them to really understand what needs to happen and by whom so that they can engage productively. So I think we're out of time for today, uh, but Carla and Mike, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Simon. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Simon, thanks. And thank you, as always, to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about our work on talent, talent management, and talents of value, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, Visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.